He had a, just, uh, there was characteristics about him that were very distinct. I'll leave it at that. And uh, this man came in to fight. And he was swinging, and people were getting uh, hit, and people were falling down. And the Lord, uh, I, I could feel it in, in my spirit, in my dream, uh, that I was supposed to grab his wrist and, and kind of tackle him and subdue him. And a bunch of people, once that happened, I was able to do that in my dream. A bunch of people uh, came around, and, and we subdued this very strong man. I was telling a brother about that dream this morning, uh, and he said, you wouldn't believe it. I also had a dream uh, with that same man in it, uh, was knocking at my door, uh, trying to get in, saying that something belonged to me, and then there, there was a fight that broke out. The same looking man, same feel of contending uh, for, for a space that is rightfully ours. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about rejection. And I believe that there are many people in here that struggle with feeling rejected all of the time. And it has been a strong man that has come into your house that is saying this rejection that is over you rightfully belongs to you. And today we are going to kick him out of our house. We're going to kick him out of our house. You know, I have great peace and great strength in knowing in Isaiah 53, 3, that it says that Jesus was also despised and rejected. See, the kind of rejection that we're talking about today, I'm not talking about rejection from the world, from, from the people who aren't Christ followers, because uh, let's be honest, and I hope this is true, that many of us are already past that in our lives. We're past feeling rejected by the world. That's something that we've come to acknowledge. That's something that we've come to embrace. What I want to talk about specifically today is feeling rejected either by the Father in heaven or by your peers right here. By other people who love Jesus. Because I want to submit to you that Jesus desires to restore those who have been rejected. He desires to restore that you were once set free, you were made a new creation, but some things happen along the way that cause you to almost have a banner of rejection over your life and where you are going, this thing seems to follow you. I feel like I can talk about this with confidence this morning is because uh, this is something I battle with. Because I know what it's like to act out of anger because of a feeling of rejection stirring in my heart. And so I want you to think to yourself, I want you to take inventory right now. Is rejection something that you deal with on a regular basis? And as I was praying about this, I, could, I was thinking of some scenarios because a lot of times, and what I've noticed in my own life, is I haven't been able to pinpoint that it's been the rejection that has caused me to act a certain way. Because things get muddy. Things get unclear. Because I'm afraid to engage with the Lord and to get to that point of pain. So I just want to read a couple things, and I, I want to try, if there's anyone else here, that maybe you haven't been able to identify that rejection has been a root in your life. I just want to read a couple of things that the Lord brought to my mind, hoping that they'll help you. Have, anyone, have you ever seen that uh, Jeff Foxworthy skit, You Might Be a Redneck, if? Yes. Like, you might be a redneck if you don't have to bend down to change your oil in your truck, you know, because it's like jack so high. 
I don't know. I, I heard it once. So I thought it was kind of funny. So think of the, don't think of these like that, but think of this like, if, if you can go through this list and say, yeah, that's one thing. That's one thing. Think I might struggle with rejection. I might have a root of rejection in my heart, okay? Not that you're a redneck. Okay, here we go. Um, do you often feel isolated? Do you feel like you're trying to isolate yourself? Or do you feel like you've been isolated and you go back to that point in your mind of what happened to make you feel that way? Do you refuse in your isolation? Are you refusing to allow others to share in something that's near and dear to your heart? That you're afraid to express the depth of your dreams because you are afraid that they're going to be rejected or crushed? Do you tend toward isolation? That you remove yourself from the body of people who love you. That you remove yourself from the presence of the Lord. Because if you try to isolate yourself, it could be coming from a root of rejection. What about self-sabotaging relationships? Maybe you have a relationship with someone, I'm not even talking about romantic, but you have a friendship and what you try to do is you try to sabotage it or you try to be the one who has the authority to cause the, dis the distance in it so that you don't have to go through the pain of someone else doing that because you don't want to feel rejected. Do you have many relationships in your life that have ended and you can see because they've ended because of something that I've done? Do you self-sabotage relationships? Do you have a fear of disclosing your failures? That when people come around and they're talking about what the Lord is doing, and even when other people start to confess their failures, there's something inside of you that says, I can't confess this because they will respond this way. If you find yourself in that place, when you're in a culture of people who are trying to live as open as they can, that I can't do this because if I do, they're going to see me this way. There's a root of rejection somewhere in there. Do you replay negative scenarios in your mind over and over again, specifically a scenario that made you feel like you lost your voice or that someone discounted you? Do you replay it? I wish I could have done this. If I would have done this differently, I would have done this. And you start to create a different scenario of what happened because you're trying to handle the own rejection that you felt in that moment. Is that something that you do? Are you ultra authoritative? That you try to demand people's acceptance. That if you can't get it from a heart level, you try to get it from an action level from people. Because you don't want to feel rejected as a leader. As someone who can contribute to society. As someone who has something to offer to a body. So you lean on your authority. You lean on your own stature. You lean on uh, some of these things that the Lord has given you, but you twist them and use, use them in a way that he hasn't intended to. Ultra authority. Do you have a hero complex? Do you always dream about scenarios where you can be the hero? That people will elevate you to a position and see you. That people will not reject you, but they'll accept you and they'll champion you. I would tell you that it's coming from a place of rejection. Do you quiet the voice of God to secure the accolades of man? 
When you hear God speak about something, if it's confronting sin or a, a vision or a mission that he's put you on, do you quiet that voice or do you spin or soften the truth of what that is so that you can still receive the accolades of men? Are you a peace faker? You fake peace instead of being a peacemaker, a shalom maker like we've been commanded to do. Do you just fake it? Because you don't want to receive rejection and you don't want the confrontation of making peace. Are you a peace faker? I would say if you are because there's a root of rejection deep in there. Do you reject weakness in other people? That as soon as a weakness comes to the surface, as soon as someone acts in a way that you deem uh, irresponsible or a way that they shouldn't act, do you start to push them away and to cause distance because of the weakness that you've seen in them? I'd say it's because you're responding to rejection, that that's what you try to do to yourself, that that's what you see the Lord doing to you, so you do it to other people. What about overcompensating? Trying to earn your way out of rejection. You try to set yourself apart as a leader. You try to gather a group of people unto yourself because you think that that is what qualifies you to be accepted. If that's something that you've noticed in your life, I would say there's a root of rejection that the Lord wants to peel out. You know, there's a story in Judges 11. I was talking with a brother this week about with a Jephthah. And from birth, Jephthah, he was the son of a prostitute, and his brothers, the people who he loved, the people who he cared about, the people who he was family with, rejected him. And it says basically that he was sent out with all these worthless people. And that's where he lived. That's where he dwelt. But then he had an opportunity to come back because of a strength that they saw in him, because he was a warrior, it says. It's out of this place of being a warrior, uh, you know, feeling rejected. He makes this very foolish vow and he stands up and he says, well, whatever comes through that door, I will sacrifice. And his daughter comes through the door. With his vow, he's overcompensating for the rejection that he experienced by saying, look, 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 at, look how far out I am. Look at how worthy I am. Look what I'll give up. And then he sees the foolishness in that. Has that been a pattern that you've seen in your life? You overcompensate, trying to earn your way out of rejection. So we're talking about something really deep today, if you couldn't tell. But I have some really good news, that Jesus des desires to restore the rejected. That Jesus came and he makes it his mission to restore people with a root of rejection. We're going to look at John chapter 4. I'm going to tell you the story real quick, and then we're going to break it down a little bit in the text. It's a story of Jesus traveling through Samaria. He's going from Judea to Galilee, and he ends up at a well. And there at this well, there's a woman, and he starts to speak to this woman. And as we know, that was unacceptable during this time. And they're talking, and she, he starts to tell her about her past. And she starts to ask him questions, and there's this exchange that leads to many Samaritans, the word says, and we're going to see, coming to him and believing in him. It's a place filled with rejection. Let's look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. How Jesus restores the rejected, here's the first point. He makes restoration his mission. He makes restoration his mission. 
that he has chosen to make the restoration of people who have been rejected his mission. It was intentional. It was not by accident. Look at verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, then it says, although John himself did not baptize, or Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, meaning he didn't do the baptizing, but his disciples actually baptized the people. He left Judea and departed for Galilee. So the first thing we see, I'm talking about making restoration his mission. Jesus knows his mission 100%. Right? He doesn't have any doubts about his, what his mission is. He knows. And we see two things in here. The first thing we see is that Jesus doesn't baptize anyone. Well, how does that prove his mission? Well, because all these prophecies that you see in each one of the Gospels, all these things that John the Baptist attests to is, John the Baptist says, I'm the one who baptizes with water, but the one who's coming after me is going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. Okay, we see that in John 1.33, right before that. We see in every single gospel that Jesus didn't come to baptize. That's why we don't, we don't see him baptizing here with water, because the emphasis is on him baptizing with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's not confused about what his mission is, period. He's not confused. He knows that he was, came for first and initially the lost sheep of Israel, which makes this story ab absolutely crazy. He's not confused. And it says in verse 3, he left, or excuse me, it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. It said he had to. Why? Why did he have to? Because it was part of his mission. Now, when you see Samaria, we're going to take another run at this. The, the, the reaction that you would have if you were a Jewish uh, person in this time, you'd be like, no. Like, like, like your debit card got stolen, kind of no. Like, no, which actually just happened to me not too long ago. So I want you all to practice saying, no, like your debit card got stolen. One, two, three. No. no. Okay, let's try this again. Verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. No. no. But it was his mission. I want to bring up a map real quick. I love maps, if you didn't know. Map, map, map. Okay. Did you know that in this time, you see the red arrow? Can everyone see the red arrow in the back? This is the path that the Pharisees would take to go from Judea to Galilee because they didn't want to walk through Samaria. They say, I don't even want to deal with these people, so I'm going to walk all the way around Samaria, so I'm not going to have to deal with these people. Jesus chose the green arrow. He goes right through Samaria, the place that most people felt no about. Because here's the point. Jesus, you see in his ministry, you see in, in the character of God, doesn't usually take us around things, but he takes us right through them. That's why when the Israelites came to the Red Sea, it says that God took them through the Red Sea. That's why through the Jordan River they went. That's why in Acts 28, chapter 1, it says, after they were brought safely through the storm. Maybe you're wondering right now, you're like, God, why isn't this thing lifting? Why is this taking so long? It's because he's not bringing you around it. He's bringing you through it. Because it displays a depth of his character when he does that. He's bringing you through. Don't give up because you're not experiencing an immediate dismissal of something. 
Because he's bringing you through. This is his character. This is the way he moves. He doesn't dance around issues. He goes right through them. Why is your sin not able to be hidden? Because he cares enough about you to take you through it and not let you skirt around it. That's why discipline's necessary. That's why he wants to restore his children. Because he wants to bring you through. Let's read in verse, uh, verse 5. Okay. Now remember about the Samaria part. I'm going to get to a word. Uh, it's Sakar in here. And I'm going to read that word. And so if Samaria is like my debit card got stolen, Sakar is like my bank account got drained. Okay? All right? So get ready. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 5. So we came to a town of Samaria called Sakar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. That was amazing. <laughs> so they get to this place uh, called Sakar, And it's important to note that this uh, would have been the Old Testament city of Shechem. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history because it is so, so, so important to understand the context of what's happening. So we can see how Jesus wants to restore people who have been rejected. I could talk about the, the history of the Samaritans probably for nine hours straight and not be able to cover it all, but there's some distinct things I want to tell you. So when you think about Samaria and you think about Sakar, I'm going to have my token prop minister come up. Minister makes everything sound a little better, that's why. And his sidekick. Right there. And I want you to hold it like a banner over me. Okay. You can make that straight. You can, you can figure that out, right? Okay. No. Maybe it was my bad staple job. Okay. When you think of, when you think of Samaria, when you think of Sakar, there's literally a banner over this area that screams rejection. Samaria was a place, it was a land that we saw on a map, and Sakar would be that didn't go as planned. I was Samaria, Sakar would be like this, this X right over the heart of what's going on. And imagine when people would hear the word Samaritan, that everywhere they would go, follow me, there would be this banner of rejection hanging over them. That no matter where they would go, there's a banner hanging over them. And not only was there a banner, but for those who were from Shechem, Shechem, there was an X across them. Everywhere that they went, there's a banner over them. They couldn't get themselves removed, partially because of their history, 
partially because of their current beliefs. Everywhere they went, there was a banner screaming, reject them, over them. Some of you, it doesn't matter where you're going, you feel like there's a banner of rejection over you all the time. It doesn't matter if you go to a place where people do receive you, you perceive yourself being in a place where there's an X on you and there's a banner over you saying rejection. My prayer is that the Lord is going to remove that and cast that down today because that's not the way he sees you. That's not the way he sees you, and I'm going to prove that through John 4. But maybe you're looking at me wearing this X and having this banner say, yeah, that's how I feel every single day. The Lord wants to restore you. He wants to restore you. And we look at this story, and we see these two places, Samaria with this banner. I want to read just a little bit of the history because it's important as we talk about this woman who comes to him. Because the Samaritans had a history, a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of commands and rituals from the law of Moses put together with various superstitions. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than Gentiles. Right? So we think about it. It was like, for a Jew, it was like, I, I can't stand the Gentiles. And then it was like, Gentiles, like a pig, then the Samaritans. I mean... Bottom, bottom, bottom of the totem pole. Because they were, religiously speaking, half-breeds who had a mongrel faith, the Samaritans built their own temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews burned it around 128 B.C. This obviously made the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans even worse. You see, there's a rejection over this land, a rejection over what they believe, a rejection over their culture. The Samaritans claim to be the true children of Israel who have remained faithful to the law of Moses. The Torah in their hands is the true, original, faultless Torah in all of its sentences, pronunciations, and its style. Did you know that there's actually a Samaritan theology that still exists today? Did you know that? This is going to be important as we look through this story. This is where it starts getting juicy. In 722 B.C., Assyrians conquered Israel and took most of its people captive. Most. All they left behind were the lowest classes of society because, they didn't, because of how lowly these people were regarded. I mean, talk about rejection. When someone comes to capture you, they're like, you know, I actually don't need you. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's like way worse than being picked last for dodgeball. Like, you're actually so bad that you can just go clean the locker room. That we, we don't need you. See, then the invaders, they brought Gentile colonists from Babylon, Kutha, and some other places. We see that in 2 Kings 17 to resettle the land. And they brought in all these foreign gods. And that's when things started really ramping up. But it was with the Jews that they didn't even deem worthy enough to be captured. Rejection. Meanwhile, we see in southern Judah, in the southern kingdom of Judah, the fall of Babylon in 600 B.C. People were carried off into captivity, but about 70 years later, a remnant of 43,000 were permitted to return and rebuild Jerusalem. The people who now inhabited the former northern kingdom, the Samaritans, they had time to grow and expand, 
They opposed the, the restoration and tried to undermine the attempt to reestablish the nation. So now there's a fight with the southern kingdom when they all come back in. And they're saying, no, you're, you're wrong. That You can't reestablish Jerusalem because our mountain is the true place of worship. Samaria. For just a minute, I'm going to talk about Sikar or Shechem. Did you know Sikar means drunk? The Jews gave the name to the city. And they're like, you know, you know what we should call this city? This is what historical uh, theologians will say. If they came together, they're like, let's call this story drunk, because that's what we think of these people. They're disillusioned. They're wrong in each and every way. Rejection. There's a banner of rejection over these people. Abraham, in Genesis 12, 6 through 7, Abraham passed through this land to the place at Shechem. And this is where the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, God's original intention was for restoration to exist from the beginning. That he was giving them a restored place. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Jim Bertram. Uh, he has a 1950 Cadillac that he's selling. Right? It is a beautiful car. In 1949 or 1950, do you think that Cadillac needed restoration of any type? Or do you think it came out brand new? It came out brand new, right? No restoration needed, didn't have any time to sit. When we think about this land, you have to think about it in the way that it came out. There was this beautiful promise. But it was the sin of the people that broke it down. The time of the people dwelling in their sin that broke it down, broke it down, and broke it down. This was the city that the woman at the well was in. First, first promised by God to Abram. We see also what happened in this place in Genesis 33, 2, um, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, uh, he raped Dinah in here. This was the place where that happened. There's a rejection. Joseph, uh, this is where his brothers were, and it says in Genesis 37, 12, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. This is the place where his brothers came up with this plan to throw him in a pit and pretend that he died. Rejection. There's a banner over rejection in this place. Did you know in Joshua 22 through 3 that this is one of the cities that was appointed as a city of refuge? Right? So if you accidentally killed someone, you would come to the city for atonement and for protection. That someone would judge on you if you were deemed to be protected or not. So you had all these people coming from all these places who were literally just being pressed out by their own people. saying so you have to go here because of, of what happened. Can you feel this messiness, this sense of rejection and pain and sin and this deep root that existed over this city? That's what sets the stage for us as we look for the breakthrough that Jesus brings. We see when it says that Jacob had given, this is referring to a picture of, of Jacob's well, that this land was given and I have a picture of Jacob's well. This, this still exists today. You could go there today and see Jacob's well, what it's talking about. Now there's like a giant Greek Orthodox church over it. I believe it's in the end of Ephraim, if you were going to go into the, to, to the West Bank. It's still there. But everything built up around it. We see... 
before, before we continue, I want to make three points about Samaritan theology. This is also going to help. Thanks for bearing with me in this. This is, this is important because it's going to help this story. There's a figure. There's three points to Samaritan theology. You have to know the word Taheb. The Taheb. I don't have a slide for this, but it's T-A-H-E-B. This means restorer. This was the Messiah that the people were looking for. The Samaritans were looking for the Taheb. The one who was going to restore them. The one who was going to restore the rightful worship on their mountain. They called him the Taheb because that was the name that they had for Moses. They were looking for the Moses figure to come back. Did you know? So the Taheb, they had a very interesting view, Samaritan theology, about prophets. They said that they only have one prophet and his name is Moses. And they rejected all other prophets. All right? Remember that. It's going to be important later. Here's the third thing about the Torah. Did you know that they reject all writings except the Torah? Samaritan theology. No prophets, no, no writings, not the word of God, just the Pentateuch, just the, the first five books. Torah, that's, that's all they believed in. It's important to note that the, they have a Samaritan Torah, which changes spelling, grammar structure, and even significant semantic changes, such as uniquely uh, Samaritan commandment to construct an altar on Mount Gerizim. So now as we look through the story, and we're going to see this part about these mountains and all these things, uh, this lady wasn't some just dumb lady. She actually knew about her beliefs. She knew about the theology that her entire society was built on. Let's pick up in verse, verse 6. Thank you. Jacob's well, well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he went from his journey, was stirring beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There's a little bit dispute here. Some people say it's noon, if you're going to go according to Jewish time. But if John was writing this and using Roman time, which we've seen has happened also in this book, it would be about six o'clock in the evening. It, it doesn't really matter, but it's important to know that there's something, something there. It says, a woman from Samaria. I'll give you another run. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. When Jesus restores people from rejection, the first thing we saw is he makes it his mission. The second thing is he overcomes our objections. He overcomes our objections. When you are trying to be set free and you're like, God, deliver me, take me through this rejection I'm feeling, a lot of times what, times what we do is we bring these lies or these thoughts to Jesus, and we have these objections of why we shouldn't be able to be set free, of why we still deserve to be rejected. Maybe you have a list of your own that when you're dealing with things in your own heart, you're like, no, God, I'm, I'm worthy to be rejected because of this, this, and this, and this. I'm telling you, the way Jesus brings you through it or sets you free from it is that he overcomes our objections. It says, uh, so he said to her, give me a drink. I love verse 8. It says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. John's like making a case. Hey, this, listen, this is why the reason, this is the reason why we weren't there. So we were doing something good. We were trying to buy food. The Samaritan. Okay. Okay. We're done. We're done with that whole thing. Just, just forget it. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? You see this division, this line? A woman of Samaria. 
For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John wanted to make sure we knew that. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Mayim Kaim. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Do you see this distinction again? She's trying to say, hey, listen, I know what I believe. I know my, my history. I know that I'm right. There's a distinction. Our father, okay? There's a distinction. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's like, just so you know, so there's no confusion, this is rightfully mine. Where I'm at right now, this place I'm in, this is my rightful spot. That is one of the lies that we try to believe over and over and over. God, I deserve this, and there's nothing you can say that will make me be moved from this spot of feeling rejected. This is rightfully mine because of the sin I've done. This is rightfully mine because of the choices that I've made, because of my lack of responsibility, because of, of my lack of leadership, whatever it is. Just so you know, God, there's a divide, and this belongs to me. And see, the whole point of the gospel is Jesus says, yes, but I want to take it on for you. But I desire to take it on for you because I love you. That this isn't about what you've done. This is about how I'm going to carry it. We got a word this morning about Jesus carrying it. He's like, I want to take it off you and put it on me. But so many times we try to make this divide saying, no, God, no. No, I, I know I can be forgiven overall, but not for this, this, and this. I deserve, I deserve that, I deserve that. He's saying, no, because of my grace and because of my love and because of my mercy, I am willing. I am willing. It's a lie that we believe. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or to come here to draw water. She still misses it a little bit. Here are some objections that we constantly see. Verse 9, when she says, but I am a woman. Sometimes we come to God and say, I have the wrong qualifications. Did you know that a rabbi wouldn't even talk to his wife or his daughters in public? And Jesus is like, I desperately want to interact with you right now. I want, I want you to engage with me. When we're in worship, the whole thing is we're coming together to engage with the creator of the universe. He's saying, I want to engage with you. And she says, no, because of my, my qualifications, I'm a woman. I, I shouldn't be able to do this. I have the wrong qualifications. Maybe you feel unqualified to engage with Jesus. He has a response for you. Then she says, I'm from Samaria. She said, I have the wrong background. I wasn't trained in this. I'm a woman. I'm not qualified. And I come from the wrong place. And my past is too messy, God. What I've done, how I've rejected you in the past is too messy. In verse 10, look at Jesus' response to wrong qualifications and a wrong background. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the water. He's saying, if it was who it was saying to you, he said, well, the good thing is, it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your qualifications, it's about who I am. It's not about your past, it's about who I am. This is what I do. 
He's talking about the living water, the Ma'im Kahim. It's this, it's this picture of they're at a cistern full of just this, this water that is sitting there. And he's saying, I'm the flowing water. Do you understand? I'm the water that is active and that is moving. And we think of the water that came out of Jesus' side. He said, I am the water that is moving. When I was reading this, it made me think uh, one time we had this idea. We were going on a lazy, a real river that was a, like a lazy river. Has anyone been on a lazy river raft ride like that? You just kind of sit in inner tube. Well, we decided to go on one, and they're like, it's pretty long. It's like three hours. And we're like, well, it'll still be fun. You know, we're with our friends, and we're all in these inner tubes. And See, the reason it was three hours is because the water didn't actually move in the river. But you had to paddle your way through. It was an extremely lazy river. And so finally, we're paddling for it, and we're like, this, is, this was the worst idea. Nowhere to get out, nowhere to jump in, you know, that bus that they, like, bring you all in and put those tubes in, like a trailer in the back of the bus. And so we're just, like, paddling through it. But finally, like, a quarter mile from the end, you know, it's two and a half hours in, the water starts to pick up. And we're all just like, thank you. <laughs> we could just lay there. We're exhausted. This one kid that went with us wore a sweater the whole time. It was, it was a ridiculous trip. But we got to this... <laughs> There's a backstory, but I, I, I don't have the liberty to go into it right now. And so we finally get to this place where the water is moving, and it was like the most refreshing thing ever. After being scorched in the sun and working as hard as you can to get up this river, finally you're like laying there, and you can feel the breeze now start to wash over you. And it's this picture of like Jesus saying, I, I'm, I'm going to be the movement in your life. I'm going to be the movement in your life. I'm going to restore you and bring you back to who I've created you to be all along. He says, I am the Ma'im Kaim. I am the living water. Wrong objections, but I have the wrong background. Here's the second thing she says. We have the wrong tools. She asked Jesus in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. So you don't, have, you don't even have the right tool. How are we going to do this? How, how is this going to happen? You, you don't actually have everything you need. And it's this really cool picture because she had a water jar. And her assumption going into it was, you don't want to use a vessel that would belong to me. That you don't want to use my vessel. That is a lie. Because Jesus desires to partner with our vessel. He desires to partner with who we are. You're not rejected. He doesn't reject you. Verse 12. She's like, I have the wrong, we have the wrong tools. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. She has the wrong theology. What she believes about what God did is wrong. Sometimes the most humbling thing to do is to admit when you have a wrong theology. There's a guy I saw, he, he sent out a tweet years ago, but it, it's always stuck with me. He, he's a preacher, he's like a megachurch preacher, but he said, uh, today's preaching goal is to, to avoid the elitist belief that my theology is better than everyone else's. She had the wrong theology. What she believed about God wasn't even true. She was a half-breed. Her, her land was filled with idols. She said, I, I, but I need the right tools. I, I, I need the right belief. You have to... Jesus responds and says to her, 
I am what you need. It's about me. Again, that's, that's right where you look, look at the next verse. He says, but everyone who drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I have everything you need because what you need is something eternal. And she still doesn't quite get it, but that's okay. See, Jesus wants to overcome our objections of why we are not worthy, of why we should be rejected. And when you are coming before him saying, God, I have an issue. I have this banner of rejection over my life. Spend time with him and let him confront your objections, why you are feeling worthy. Let him do that. Receive the truth that he has to say. Because here's the third thing that he does when he's restoring someone who's been rejected. He reveals the root of the rejection. He reveals the root. He's like, I don't want you just to, to, to chop that off. I, I want to show you the root of why you feel so rejected. Think back at the beginning of some of those things that I, I read through. Why do I act this way? Not just the fruit of it, but what is the root of it? Why? He reveals the root. He wants to get to that place with you. So many people are so afraid to let him go there. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go there with him. Ask him, God, what is the root? Where did this start? How has that shaped my life? Okay, we're getting to a part in the story now where it's going to start to pick up a little, a little bit of steam. See, right now, there's, a, there's many different views of this woman. Right? Some would say, uh, no, this woman was there at noon because she's a prostitute and she's looking for business. That's who she was. That's what she was doing. I would suggest that there's actually a different story. You, you can choose to believe that if you want, but there just seems to be too much in the story to suggest that she was just some dumb prostitute who was at a well looking for business. Okay, and I want you, if, if that's been your friend, that's how I thought of this story. But as I was diving in and diving in and diving in, some things just didn't make sense. And I want to submit to you that maybe it was an adultery that God was going after in her heart. Let's look. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you are now with, or that you now have, is not your husband. She says, what you have said is true. So there's a couple of things that I just, I just want to point out. There were many reasons, especially during this time, that a woman could have had five husbands. And I'm going to come back to this a little later too, so I'm not going to give them all right now. Divorce was very easy in this time. Uh, you could get divorced for very simple things. Did you know that a woman uh, could not legally go and file for divorce against her husband though? If, if you have the view of, of this woman being a serial adulterer, why would guys continue to marry her knowing that some of their wealth would be at stake? Right? Why would the people, when she goes, and we're going to see in a bit, why would the people run when she goes to the town, believe if she was just some dumb adulterer, why would they believe her story? be convicted to the point of coming with her. From a very basic sense, and I don't want to be crass with this, um, 
if she was a prostitute or an adulterer, and the, the Lord is pointing that out, and there had been five clients, I mean, she's probably not in the right realm of business. Do I have to explain that anymore? Does that, we're all good on that? I just think, I just think there was more. I, th I think it was something deeper than you had five partners. I just think there was something more. We're going to come back to that just in, in, in a little bit. I, I think if anything, though, what we can see in these verses, that there, there continues to be a sense of spiritual covering that is removed from her. There's a sense of covering that came at one point, and now it was removed. And then she comes to the sixth time that she has an interaction with a man. This, I mean, if you look into it, this could have been, it could have been that she was with a man who wasn't her husband. But then why wouldn't have Jesus just said six husbands if he was referring to the people that she committed adultery with? But there's this sense of the man you're with is not your husband is because you're not being covered. Because there isn't, there's more rejection here. Yeah, I just want to submit this to you. If you don't, if you're not following, it's totally okay. There's a sense of covering being put over and taken away. Put over, taken away. Put over, taken away. Death, divorce, whatever, whatever you think. Verse 23. You know, first, I, I, let's, let's go to uh, verse 18. Just kidding, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. See, a lot of times people, people will look at this story and say, look, look how she's changing the subject. She must be squirming right now about her sin. All right, think back to the Samaritan theology that we talked about before, that they believed that there was only one prophet, and his name was Moses. And she knew what they believed. And so right now, with that in mind, she's saying, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And you can imagine if you were in her shoes, she's thinking, is this Tabed? Is this Taheb? Is this him? Is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? There's no prophet but Moses. But he spoke to, to, about something to me so deeply that it's, it's, it's making me think that he's the prophet. You know, seriously, if, if it was five people or clients that, that she had... Um, he could have heard about that from anyone in the city. I don't think it would be too surprising. Hey, watch out for that woman there. She's done this. But there was something deeper than that that made her say, I think that this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Jesus wants to reveal the root of rejection. In verse 20, so that prophet, that, that whole Taib theology, the prophet theology checked off the list. I think you're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So, so number two on the list, remember, we talked about the prophets and then the Torah, which in their Torah stated that it was okay to set up an altar on their mountain. She's not trying to change the subject. She's put together a checklist saying, I think he's the Messiah. Let me just check these things off first. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship uh, will you worship the Father? Verse 22, you, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. Right now, this is the moment when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. How amazing is that God's just looking and he's seeking. Will somebody worship me in spirit and in truth? Will somebody worship me spiritually and truly? God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Think back to Exodus 3.14 when God reveals himself in this way. Torah or not Torah, Exodus? Torah. He's saying, I'm breaking down all of your objections. I'm breaking down your bad theology and your misrepresented thoughts of who I am. I'm revealing myself to you in a very, very full way. Can you see how it's just a little deeper than her trying to change the subject? Can you see how he's confronting all of her objections because he's trying to get to the root of something in her life? Because once he does, it is going to change who she is and the banner over this nation forever. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? You know, I'm sure you hang around Jesus enough and he does all these, you know, what you perceive to be off-color things. And these things happen. And you learn just sometimes to shut your mouth. Sometimes I just need to learn to shut my mouth. Amen? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Huh. Think about that. Come see a man who told me everything, all of what I ever did. If, if he was just referring to the five people that supposedly were her clients... Would that constitute of everything that she ever did? Or would that just be like a, like a page in her life? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So think about this. This woman goes and she talks to the people. Come see a man who told me about everything that I ever did. What if it wasn't about her committing adultery? What if it was about this deep pain in her heart from having to go to husband and being uncovered, to husband to being uncovered, to husband to being uncovered, that was forcing her and making her respond in a way that was filled with constant rejection and that she was now able to see that all of these choices in her entire life that she made came from a place of the rejection that she experienced with all these husbands. As I look through Jesus' ministry, this is, this is why I'm seeing this, and this is why I, I feel fairly, fairly good about why this is the, the, the answer. Because Jesus never really talks about the fruit when he's dealing with people. You think of Matthew 5, you think of when he's, uh, he's giving his sermon on the mount. Everything is going back to the root. This is the reason why this is. This is the reason why this is. This is the reason why this is. When we see in John 8, when he's dealing with a woman who is with, without a doubt caught in adultery, he deals with her much different than this woman at the well. He tells her, sin no more. I do not condemn you, but sin no more. Jesus doesn't even address this. I want to submit that it's because Jesus was talking about the root 
of the pain that she felt in her life that was forcing her to make all of these other decisions. It was the perceived reason that was forcing her to make all of these other decisions, that it was like this banner that she wasn't able to identify over her life so that when she came before people and said, this man told me the reason why I do everything I do, it was much deeper. When you think about all that I ever did, you think about that statement for a second, it really implies that there's a length of time. It implies that there's a length of time in her life. And these same things kept happening. Same thing kept happening. Same thing kept happening. Same thing kept happening. And because of this, it built up almost like this stronghold. Maybe you feel like because of certain patterns of things that have happened, that has built up a stronghold or a banner of rejection over you. Jesus wants to expose that root. And I could give a hundred scenarios of things that could do that. But I want to do that to place a thought in your mind. I want Jesus to reveal the root of your rejection. Because I know that he will. I've seen it in his word and I know he can still do it. Even right now, right where you're at. Think, Jesus, what is the root of my rejection? What events have caused this? The beautiful thing is he doesn't just leave us in this spot. He doesn't only reveal the root and then peace out, but he stays until belief is solidified. This is the lesson. This is how he deals with it. He goes straight toward it. He doesn't go around it. He takes us straight through it. He makes it his mission. He overcomes our objections. He reveals the root of it, and then he stays until belief is solidified. There's a cool little sidestep here in the scripture. There's like a ministry moment. For those of you we were talking about last week that want to be in ministry, he's a ministry moment with his disciples, and he's explaining to them the things that just happened. It says in verse uh, 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's like, yeah, the thing that just happened, that was because it was my father's will. That's why it happened. Do you not say that there are four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. They're ready. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you have, for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So there's a couple of ministry points I want to go through real quick. Uh, the first thing this in verse 34 we see is finish what you start. Thing number one, finish what you start. It's easy to be excited about something new and something, you know, that, that is, is uncertain and the adventure of going into something. But Jesus is saying, finish what you start. I have come to accomplish the work, not to start the work, to accomplish the work that the Father has given me to do. For anyone looking to go into ministry, are you accomplishing the work that the Lord has given you to do right now? Because that, that's the second thing. He says in verse 34 that there, there's urgency for here and now. There's urgency for here. Now, don't you see the fields? They are white for harvest. They are ready. We're in the summer harvest. This is what we were talking about uh, after Pentecost. We are in the season right now. Be urgent. 
Finish what you start. Because if you do, he says in verse 36 through 38, your life will be filled with reward, things that remain, rejoicing, and kingdom relationships. If you do these things, that's what your life will be filled with, he says in 36 to 38. The one who, is, who reaps receives his wages, reward, and gathers fruit for eternal life, things that remain, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together, life of rejoicing, for the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. You have kingdom relationships. That's your reward. Jesus was referring to what just happened. Finish what you start and be urgent about it. And then he's going to demonstrate finishing what he starts. And this is the last thing. He stays until belief is solidified. That when you enter into this place with Jesus and you're like, Jesus, reveal the root of this rejection in my heart. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you in that spot. But he's going to take you through it. We see that from the very beginning. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And this is also mind-blowing because many Jews wouldn't pass through this place, let alone camp out in this place. And you don't have to be fearful that Jesus is going to leave you because he's willing to camp out with you in the midst of your rejection, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your failure, that he's not just going to get up and leave. He's willing to stay and take you through it. And it says in verse 41, and many more believed because of his, Jesus' word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said we, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. See, listen, the woman, your testimony, I mean, awesome. The Lord revealed to you everything. That was the root of, of what you've been going through. He revealed to you. He spoke to the, the fact that he's a prophet, that he, he counteracted the argument of the Torah. But we've got to talk to this guy for ourselves. And they go to him themselves. And they're not saying we believe that the guy revealed your sin. We, re we believe that he said you were an adulterer five times. He's saying, no, we believe that he's the savior of the world, that he is the one that we've been waiting for all along. And what I want to tell you this morning is that maybe you've been waiting for a breakthrough in this rejection banner that's been over your life, and Jesus has been the answer all along. There's no drug that will take this away from you. There's no amount of time in counseling groups that will take this away from you. His name is Jesus. He is the only one. It is him and him alone. That's how he reveals himself. That's how he reveals himself. So today, we we're talking about if you're going through these things, if you are experiencing rejection in your life, this is how Jesus wants to engage with you. It's his mission. Don't be afraid. Don't come to him like, like a, a child who's afraid of their dad to ask for a gift. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I've came to earth to do. Don't be afraid. This is what I'm here for. Don't be embarrassed. This is what I'm here for. What, you have some questions? You have some objections to the truth that I've written my word? It's okay. Let's engage in it. And I guarantee that I'm going to give you an answer and reveal to you what is true. Not only am I just going to tell you what is true, reveal myself and the truth of who I am, but I'm going to reveal to you the root of why you do the things you do. We're going to get to the deepest part. We're going to get to that place where everything started to change for you and you can't figure out why. 
And guess what? I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you once you get vulnerable and open up your heart to me. I'm going to stay there for much longer than anyone has ever stayed here before because that's how good I am. Don't be afraid to engage. Don't be afraid. Jesus is going to restore you from that place of rejection. You just have to let him do it. If you could all stand up, I just want to pray for us. It's one thing to hear words like this, but it's another thing to go to war over them. And so as our first step, I just hope in, in a, a moment of boldness, if you feel like there's a banner of rejection over your life, can you just raise your hand? Can you just, amen. Amen. If you see someone with their hand raised, I just want you to place your hand on them right now. I want you to come around them. We are going to war together. You know, see, there's a promise that Jesus gave to his disciples that it was going to be filled with kingdom relationships, and this is what it looks like. So if you feel like there's a banner of rejection over your life, don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed. Lift your hand. Make sure that someone is around you. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time just praying. I want you to pray that objections will be overcome right now in this moment. I want you to pray that Jesus would reveal a root right now in this moment. And that they would feel the presence of the Lord remaining with them. So lift up your voices, saints. Lift up your voices right now. We're going on war. We're going over war. On behalf of one another. Come on. Come on, right now. Lift up your voices. Come on.
Let him go there. Let him open up your heart. Reveal the root, God. Reveal the root, God. Let the Lord overcome your objections right now. Choose to believe what he says is true. I was reminded that true humility is not saying I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but it's saying, God, I'm, I'm choosing to submit myself to what your word says, God, to your truth. Thank you, God. God, would you reveal the roots right now? Lord, would you bring to mind the roots of what are causing or for patterns to be unbroken? Let them go there. God, we thank you for meeting us here right now. We thank you that your spirit is moving right now. God, in your word, it says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God, we thank you that you will not cast us away. So God, the work that was started in here, Lord, would you continue it? Lord, in your word, you promised to stay. Lord, that you would not leave us as orphans, but you would remain. So, Lord, would you continue to reveal these roots? Would you continue to combat all of our objections? Lord, would we be willing to stay as long as it takes to get this worked out? God, I acknowledge that I quit before you quit every single time. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you, God. You are worthy. You are worthy, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue to stay around. Pray. If you have to leave, you're dismissed.